So when I go to the village and I talk to the and rural areas and I talk to the farmers and I ask them like, are you interested to bring your child into farming? Nine out of 10 basically says, no, I don't want them to get into farming. Jamil, on his first day, like in Misfit, so he basically came to me and he said, I just sold my car today. The first time I explained this idea to anyone who does not know me, basically said, oh, this sounds like a Ponzi scheme. Um, <laughs> Hi, I'm Salman Hussain, and welcome back to Beginner's Boomshot. It's a show about entrepreneurs, change makers, and the misfits among us, where we go deep into their untold backstories and crazy ambitions. My season one is focusing on the pivoting stories from the Bangladesh startup and entrepreneurship scene. And in this episode, I'm talking to the founder and CEO of a first-of-its-kind startup in the agri-tech space, focusing on democratizing the agriculture financing and supply chain. If you're listening to this podcast for the first time, don't forget to subscribe so that you get notified of our new episodes going live every week. If you're also enjoying Beginner's Moonshot, do share it with anyone who will find these interviews useful and hopefully inspiring. With that, let's get into it. The agricultural sector in Bangladesh has been facing a dip in the number of people employed in this sector ever since 2010. From being the largest sector of employment since the 1970s, the agricultural sector has lost its place to the service sector since 2019. For most countries, this is a good sign as it shows signs of economic development. But is it a good sign for Bangladesh? Bangladesh has been the top exporter of many agricultural products such as jute, tea, shrimps and more. Hence, the decline could negatively impact Bangladesh's GDP and is a definite cause of concern. So the question is, why is the employment rate falling in this sector? Fahadifaz had the same question back in 2018 when he founded his startup iFarmer to improve the livelihood of the farmers by facilitating the farming households of Bangladesh who are largely unbanked and rely on informal financing. Having 10 years of experience in economic development with organizations like the World Bank, Care International, Swiss Contact, it helped Fahad to better understand the supply chain and the gaps that needed to be fixed iFarmer aims to provide end-to-end financial solutions for smallholder farmers. And in this episode, we not only go into the backstories of the founding story of iPharma, but also all the startups that Fahad previously built with his fellow co-founders. We will also have a deep dive into some of the failures and ways that he learned many lessons as he embarked into this entrepreneurship journey from his usual 9-to-5 career. Fahad, thank you so much for joining this show and welcome to Beginner's Moonshot. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, and yeah, hope hope to have a good chat about everything that you want to know. Anything that you had in mind before coming to this show? Uh, were you expecting anything different? Uh, are you doing podcasts lately? Are you being interviewing anywhere else lately? Uh, so I think I've been thinking about um, like podcasts lately, actually. So I've like before, I think before the pandemic, I did not really get into podcasts that much. But I think during the pandemic, I'm sort of like hooked up on like, you know, podcasts. And recently, like we were like asking people, there's a, there's a 
event and people were asking like, you know, what's your favorite podcast? And I, I, I tried to figure out which one is my favorite, but then I, then I went on to like picking um, one and then, then I recommend that podcast for, for most founders. If you're a founder, you should listen to this. It's called Masters of Scale. Yeah, so it's it's kindly my favorite. Um, yep. So yeah, and um, I think I think it's very amazing that you know the, the the quality of the discussion there they go really deep. So yeah, yeah, yeah. No, uh, I really hope to. I definitely would not dare uh, uh, <laughs> topping Reid Hoffman and also um, uh, the team behind him who is really doing yeah. an amazing job at curating the stories and also the people he ends up interviewing. But the goal is somewhat similar, is to really go into the backstories, go into the stories as to, uh, the, in, of the building blocks as opposed to the, sort of the peak of the story when you have already been there, done that. Uh, right. And I think uh, it's to inspire people, to give people a bit of a roadmap, uh, so to speak, uh, to really help them understand that the journey uh, of an entrepreneur is much different than what is often being you know, shared or expressed uh, from not so entrepreneurs uh, themselves who are basically blogging away or ghostwriting about it. So I thought to demystify the real life of an entrepreneur and all the chaos that comes with it, I wanted to sort of bring this all up. Um, so why don't you, I mean, since I, I know you a long time and we'll go back to the, probably the very time we met uh, in our life. But before that, uh, why don't you quickly introduce yourself as to what is Fahad doing right now? What have you been doing lately, let's say, in the recent last 12 months? Right. So in the last 12 months, I've been building a company called iFarmer, which is an agri-fintech company. And I think in the last six months, we have uh, I have been mostly involved in making sure that we um, get funds, we build a sustainable business, and also, I think I've been doing a lot of explanation, like for both internal stakeholders, like within the country, and also external stakeholders, like investors, because not everyone understands agriculture, um, and, and agriculture does not follow the same pattern in more developed countries, even within less developed countries or, or developing countries. It's still like a, um, you know, it's a very contextual thing. Um, even though the problems are pretty similar, but, but the agriculture industry works in very different ways. So I've been doing, I think I've been doing a lot of explaining about um, what are the problems, how does agriculture work in Bangladesh? Uh, even people in Bangladesh does not always, always realize how agriculture works. We get the food on our plate and we don't necessarily know how that food is produced and then comes to our plate. Um, so I think I've been doing these three things mostly: fundraise, building a sustainable business, and and while doing all these two, like explaining the agriculture industry as as a whole to a, to a lot of people. And so when you say people don't have quite a good idea um, in terms of how ex- agriculture really works in Bangladesh, what exactly are you trying to point out in terms of the the basic uh, necessary understanding that you often feel probably is required for people to at least appreciate? Right. I, th- I think the first thing that we need to appreciate and first thing that we need to be also concerned with a bit is that this is a country which is, I don't know, roughly the size of New York. I think I read it somewhere that Bangladesh is roughly the size of New York with a population which is, I don't know, probably seven, ten times more than New York. 
Um, so imagine in this this piece of land where we have to produce food for so many people, um, we have to be concerned. Um, and the question that I always have in my mind and the question that keeps me awake at times is that who is going to produce that food? like, you know, that food for my children, for your children, and, you know, the children that, that you know, the next generation. Uh, because for us, we sort of took it granted, right? Our parents and our, and our grandparents, they were directly involved in agriculture. So they knew how to grow stuff. They, they had the tools and techniques. We don't, right? We, we, we are a more privileged um, bunch of people who has have had our, our you know, things like you know sort of handed over to us we go to a grocery store we go to a you know our, our nearby um, in the wet market we most of us even don't go there anymore um, and we, we, we see we just eat the food but we never really understand the, the the full process of it where is it coming from and the bigger question that um, am I going to get this supply of food um, for the rest of my life and also for my future generation. Because the other thing that I, I should mention here is that even though we're the size of New York, every year we lose about 1% of our um, agricultural land because farmers are not interested uh, in farming uh, because they don't feel, you know, it's, 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 it's a rewarding job. And their children are not interested at all to get into farming. So when I go to the village and I talk to the in rural areas and I talk to the farmers and I ask them like, are you interested to bring your child into farming? Nine out of 10 basically says, no, I don't want them to get into farming. If I ask their children, do you want to get into farming? Almost, I want to say 10 out of 10 would say, I don't want to get into farming. Right? So that's that's the question that we all have to figure out the answer for, like where 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 will we get our food um, in in the coming years? And that's something I think everyone should be concerned about. So I think that's a very uh, very important question, and I sort of personally happen to be in the position to relate it very well because I'm also currently building uh, agritech here in Thailand right now as part of my. Um, responsibility uh, where I work. Um, but I don't want to talk my, my idea, but I think what I want to ask you is uh, when you are seeing this pattern among these farmers and their family members not quite um, planning on taking up what their forefathers have been doing for years and centuries maybe, what has been the biggest contributor for that? Is it a lack of um, infrastructure for them, or is it a pure, you know, distraction from all the other things that's happening in the world? What's contributing the most? I think I think um, I don't think there's one single thing that is that is sort of uh, making this happen. Uh, there are a couple of things that that you know, in combination, is playing for this that people are not interested in agriculture. The first thing is, of course, as you mentioned, the lack of infrastructure. We can't deny that. Right? The amount of investment that has happened um, in agriculture, most of it has happened in the 80s or 90s. After that, sort of, we, we started focusing more on manufacturing. We started focusing more on building the service industry and all that and all these things. Agriculture sort of got neglected. And that is also sort of reflecting our, our uh, you know, the employment structure of the country. And I think, I think last year or the year before, it was for the first time that um, services uh, took over agriculture 
in terms of the number of people that gets employed. Um, but I think after independence, for the longest period of time, agriculture had the major share of employment. So you can understand that there has been a lack of investment in infrastructure um, in, in terms of you know building the right kind of infrastructure for agriculture. So that's one. The second thing is also about the perception, right? Um, that like agriculture, whether we talk about our movies, our drama serials or whatever, Agriculture has always been like a neglected thing. I get Bangladesh cinema, you know, in Bangladesh cinema, they used to, they used to talk about like, um, you know, the farmer's son is sort of like a poor person who never gets any social recognition. Uh, in Bangla, we call them like chashat chile. Right? So that, that was sort of like, again, you, you, you never say a oh, banker's son is, you know, you know, neglected. It's, it's the farmer's son who gets neglected. So it's the perception that we have created around agriculture that it is meant for the poor people. It is meant for people who does not have anything better to do. They have a piece of land. They live in rural areas. This is, you know, this is expected. They will be in agriculture. Um, and I think the last thing is about, I want to talk about aspiration. Because the younger generation, um, they want, you know, their aspiration is to do something better because now they're more connected. They're on Facebook, YouTube. They see all these great things happening. Um, but, and probably they start aspiring that, well, I want to become the CEO of something. I want to get a better job. I want to go abroad. But probably there's not enough aspiration around agriculture, right? Because that, that usually does not get reflected. It, there are good examples around agriculture, but those are not really highlighted. So the aspiration is not there. Um, so I, th I think for, for me, these three things like infrastructure, which also includes investment, finance, everything. Um, the second thing is the perception that we have created. And the third thing is that we, there hasn't been enough aspiration for the next generation to get into agriculture. Right. Um, I think uh, I would deep dive more into how you're still planning on, you know, despite all of these odds, uh, what made you really sort of want to take a step in this um, industry and that too in a country where we still have a long way to go when it comes to infrastructures, you know, the, the branding that you're talking sure. about, you know, you probably uh, would have often tough time explaining that you're actually working with the farmers where I would, let's say, I, would, I actually would like to call myself a modern day digital farmer, sort of working for the farmer, building right. for the farmer. Right. But, but before that, like, tell me, um, being a boy who was most likely born and raised in the city, and I, I, I would fairly believe so because I met you during our teenage years. We used to be in the same neighborhood. Um, what, what, when did you first even conceive the idea of even exploring, and when did you get hooked to the whole agricultural thing? Because this is not the first. Uh, sort of a stint in your life that you're spending time in this agriculture. I know that in your career that you've been quite involved. Tell us a little bit more about that. Right. So I think I think I got hooked on agriculture. Um, I, it was it was 2010. Um, I don't remember the day actually, but I still remember the month. It was March 2010, and the reason I remember that is because that was my first job. I, so I, right after university. Um, I had an option to join a bank, a major multinational bank. I went there for about seven days and then I figured out that this is, I, I cannot be a banker. I'm just not built for it. So I went and, you know, 
joined a international NGO that works with farmers. Um, and my my aspiration or my interest to join that was because I thought I could travel all around the country because the the you know the the, the NGO that I uh, you know started to work for they have projects all over the country and I thought well there's a fantastic chance to basically travel all around and see the country and and I think it was my it was my first field trip and that was in March 2010 uh, and I went to Rangpur. Uh, in the northern part of the country, and I met some farmers and some, you know, traders, retailers, and I figured out that this bunch of people—they are so talented, they're so entrepreneurial. Um, and I started, I studied business and economics in, in university, and a lot of things that I've, you know, learned in theory, I could see that even though they can't name any of these um, theories or, or these models, they were they were doing all of this in their in their daily life. And there was, there was actually a lot of wealth in those communities. It's not that they, they're all poor. There's actually a lot of wealth revolving around these communities. But the challenge was that this wealth was sort of like uh, not accounted for. These are, these are all happening in cash. These are all like, you know, very personal relationship-based transactions. So they're not always accounted for. So you never really, as an outsider... You never really know the amount of wealth there is, and these people have built doing, you know, small micro trading and, and, and farming and stuff like that. I think that was it. Like that was my first trip, and I figured out that well, this is interesting, and that got me hooked. Of course, back then I didn't have the idea of I farmer, but what? But following years, I worked almost for ten years in that space. Not with the same organization. I, I, I moved to other organizations. I moved. Um, work outside the country but in the same space right agriculture um and i think over the years what happened was i didn't know the solution right but what helped me in in the in those 10 years is to probably understand the problem better the problem in different contexts the same problem of farmers not getting finance um exists in bangladesh nigeria or myanmar but the context of why they're not getting the funding or the finance or capital required is different, right? The same problem. So what helped me, I think, for the 10 years was to understand the problem better. I didn't know the solutions back then, but I think the solution sort of evolved um, because to solve their problems in different projects, I was working with different solutions, different interventions. Um, and I, I think back in my mind, the, the idea of iFarmer sort of, you know, evolved across 10 years. It's a long time to, 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 to build a solution or a solution to evolve, but I think that's what happened. And, and eventually I had so, the courage to take it forward. So you want to share a little bit more about this journey because, so first of all, clearly you didn't go um, in the path of, which is the most branded path of being a banker. Uh, you you kind of went on to working for um, Swiss contract at this point, Catalyst. Um, that was your first job. And is this something that you always had in mind that you're going to be basically, after your graduation, you would have a typical nine to five? Or did you already have a bit of an entrepreneurial sort of um, thinking at this point already? I think, well, the easy answer, you know, the, the, the easy answer would be yes, I always had this aspiration. But honestly, you know, when you're, when you're fresh out of graduate, you know, you're, you're a fresh graduate, you don't still know what you want to become, right? I, I have, I had absolutely no clue 
um, what I want to do, but I, I figured out that I don't, I will never know what I want to do, but at least I can figure out what I don't want to do, right? So the first thing I figured out is I don't want to be a banker. <laughs> That's the first thing I figured out. Uh, but I think I have this entrepreneurial, um, you know, um, I, you know, journey, I think even during my university days, so I was heavily involved with the clubs. I was eventually the president of the Young Entrepreneur Society at Northside University. And that, I think, I think that helped me sort of interact with other entrepreneurs, um, other, you know, people running a business, people managing a business. And that definitely gave me some perspective into, into how things work and, and, and that part of the, of the world. Um, but I think I think at the same time I also I think my first um, my first venture was uh, was right out of university. It was called AmarCV.com. It was basically a CV maker for 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 young graduates because I personally faced the problem I couldn't figure out my CV, so I thought why not make a platform where people can use that. But I think I think it was. Again, lack of experience, lack of whatever back then, you know, you didn't, the word startup was, I didn't even know that word startup, right? I didn't even know funding, user, customer, all these things. I, I understood a problem. I thought, okay, I can build a solution to it. But I didn't realize that there's just building a solution to a problem is, is not, not the end of things, right? It's, it's just the beginning. Um, so I think, I think all of those things sort of helped me to formulate and probably helped me to become a bit more mature. Um, my second, so iFarmer is actually my third or fourth venture, as you can say. So, so after Amar CV, I went and, you know, worked for SysContact Catalyst. I went to World Bank and I worked for CARE and, you know, in between other, other organizations. Um, and I think in the, in between all these, I also started a consulting company. But very quickly, and I ran it for two years. It was a pretty successful company. But then I figured out that this is something, again, I don't want to do because I was not getting a lot of um, uh, excitement out of it. It didn't feel like I'm solving something. It, feel, it felt like I'm just, you know, helping people and they could still live without my help. Um, again, um, nothing against consultants, but I feel that consultants are not probably always creating anything. Uh, but yeah, so then ha Misfit happened, Alice and I former happened, and I think, I think we can talk about this as we move on. But yeah, very, very sure. early in my days, I think I figured out what I don't want to do. And I sort of had some idea about interacting with entrepreneurs and trying my, something myself and burning my, um, you know, hands and learning the hard way that things don't always, um, you know, work out eventually. So, so I think uh, just for context, anyone listening to this, uh, you basically are really, in many ways, killing it in the, you know, the consulting space, uh, working for all these different development agencies, not just in Bangladesh but in Australia, and also through your consulting, you're working in Myanmar and in some few other countries, I'm sure. Uh, which for many people of your age uh, would be a dream. And at that very time, you even ended up creating your edge consulting, which is exactly right. what you're referring to. Um, and you're saying that even after sort of having your own ownership of building the same sort of value that you were creating for your clients, didn't quite fully, uh, it wasn't fulfilling enough for you. Um, and I guess, so is that the, is that the point when you, felt that you needed to do something different? Was there 
What was the first, the you know, next business that you built after deciding to sort of move away from edge uh, consulting uh, and then do your next thing? When was it, and what sort of changed your mind to do something like that? Because I'm sure, I mean, you're well paid. Yeah. You had enough <laughs> income at this point. You didn't necessarily worst, you know, unemployed. Because in many cases, different people are often hit uh, by different realities Absolutely. often, and that's when sometimes they end up sort of um, creating as well. So, did you have a moment like that, or was it a more of a conscious choice? I think. I think it was more of a conscious choice, but I, I, I don't. I mean, I don't know. Looking back, I think it was a conscious choice, but also probably because um, I I wanted to do something bigger. I wanted to do something better, and um, so I think it was in 2017 when when the idea suddenly hit me that um, I want, and that was probably the time in Bangladesh and South Asia, like suddenly people started noticing how technology is becoming a part of our life, how tech-enabled solutions are becoming a part of, of our life. And part of my frustration was that the development sector where I, I, I worked for, for the longest period of my time was not really catching up. It was still like very uh, old-fashioned stuff, right? So uh, that, that that's also probably... Um, you know, pushed me to go to go out and, and, and start trying to build something. So it was it was it was a combination of all these things. So in 2017, I thought, well, let's I, I want to move out of development and I want to build something. Uh, my first idea was to like you know build something for the development sector. Um, and then I figured out that well, even if I build the best product, um, they're probably not ready to take it. Um, so. Um, my first company after moving out of, uh, you know, development was, it's called Misfit Technologies. And, and, and the name behind, and just the naming behind it was because we wanted to, uh, we were talking about ideas back then in 2017 when AI, machine learning, and all these things are still new. IoT and all this stuff are still new. Um, at least in this part of the, uh, of the world. So whoever we were talking to, they were, they were like, they couldn't like relate to the solutions that I was trying to, you know, design. Develop. Even when I wanted to hire people, like they were like, oh yeah, you're going to build that, but who's going to buy this? Right? And so I feel like I'm a misfit and I'm talking about stuff that it seems like either I am a nutcase or I I just don't understand the market. So that's why I said, okay, let's, let's, my first idea was to call the company nutcase, but then my, my other partners thought, okay, that's, yeah. <laughs> really? So you actually was not case? Yeah, that's that's what I proposed. But then my <laughs> other founders thought. So the, the, my my other founders, they had two options, right? There's misfit or not case, right? So they had to pick one, yeah. and and probably back then they didn't like any of those. But I was very I was very strict that we pick like between these two. There's no other option, right? We have to make a statement, and these two makes a statement. So yeah, of course we didn't go with nutcase. So we went with misfit technologies. Um, yeah, so I think I think I think that's how I started. That I wanted to build something for the development sector, but then it transpired into something else. Um, so I think everyone um, at some point in their life or in their career, you know, contemplate building something. Uh, and I think you know we are often faced with problems, and it probably happens to probably most of us. But yet, most of us don't end up doing it, and you did it. Um, I just want to know 
what was available uh, in your disposal that you think helped you take the decision to build something of your own and sort of letting go of that safety net or that comfort of already well-established recognition that you had in the consulting space or in the overall uh, sort of the businesses that you're building? I think, look, as I grew up in a middle-class family, right, so, and, and, and I, I think I represent almost, you know, 90% of the middle-class population of the country, probably, probably even higher, uh, where, you know, your parents have certain dreams for their children, but then also I think middle-class parents don't dream uh, too big because there's always this, you know, risk of, that, that dream getting crashed and crushed and whatever. Uh, because, of course, they do it out of, out of good conscience and because they don't want their parents, children to, to face those harsh realities. So, of course, they, they give, like my parents gave me the best possible education. They wanted a good life for me. And probably I, I got in that track, right, where they were really proud of me that, um, you know, I, I'm doing something um, that, that, that where I am happy, I'm earning well and, and doing things. So why, does, why rock the boat? Um, but I, I think I think the first support I got was basically from my parents, and the support was in a way that they never questioned my decisions. Right? So sometimes you know support means okay, parents are telling you that okay, go ahead, do whatever you want. My parents never told me that. Right? But the best thing is they never asked me any any questions. So I felt that okay, I don't have to answer to them. That's the first thing. Right? They they're okay with whatever I'm doing as long as I'm not doing anything illegal. Um, so they're okay with that. You basically got an NOC, like a no, a no, no, no yeah, objection exactly, certificate. Right? <laughs> right. So it's sort of an NOC. Um, and, and, and then I think, I think it, was, it was my wife who sort of, because again, that's another big challenge when you, when you start a family and, and, and you, know, you have um, additional responsibilities. You have other people that, that looks up to you. Um, I think I think my wife also like supported uh, me again, sort of an NOC, like okay, do whatever you want. <laughs> and how many years of marriage were you guys in at this point? I think it's uh, two years. Yes, two years. Two years. Um, not too early, uh, and probably two years is some, right after the honeymoon old. period. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and and that's probably when you start planning things for the future. And then suddenly you go to your wife and you say, well, you know what, uh, I'm, I'm, go I'm taking a different path. So whatever plans we made, they might have to wait for some time. Uh, but but she, was, she was okay with it. So did, did, did she have any, did she something sort of, like was it something she already kind of knew that it, this is you or she didn't quite expect that you would do it at two years in the marriage? I, th I think she already knew as a, as a person. I think, I, I think it's, it's also, you know, you need to build this up, right? You can't just suddenly go and say, hey, I'm leaving a well-paid job and starting something. You have to also like build this up, right? So I, th I think I've started building this up. And the first, the first thing I did was I started complaining a lot about uh, my job. <laughs> I was like, I was like, I am not happy here. I had complained so much that at one point she probably thought, okay, do whatever you want, but just don't, just don't whine on to me about your kind of job. Um, but yeah, I, th I think, I, th I think that apart, uh, the last thing was I found some fantastic human beings um, um, who are currently my co-founders, my partners, whatever I call them. Um, 
and I, I think I think they also sort of helped me because if I, if it was me alone, and I, I, I tell this to everyone that to start a company, you probably don't need money, you probably don't need a lot of things, you probably need someone that okay, um, even if I fail, he will probably back me up, right? In whatever way, a, you know, moral backup, financial backup. A lot of things. So I think I think we have this understanding among. So it was four of us who combined together to start everything. Um, so f- the four of us had again not a written agreement, right? It was just an understanding that um, you know all of us are leaving our jobs and starting something. So we all have some savings that we are bringing to the table. Someone might have more, someone might have less, but we'll share it, right? So if once if we're in trouble and someone needs more help. Maybe I don't need that amount of help, so I'll basically, you know, put my part to, to the other person. So I, th- I think that was a major boost. Um, and uh, yeah, looking back, I think that was it. So, and and these founders uh, were they already your friends from before, or when did you meet them, and and how did you ended up deciding that they would be your sort of partners in crime? Yes, I think, so not all of them are my friends. So one of them, so Jamil is currently the CEO of iFarmer. So he's he's been a friend for almost 15 years. We went to university, we, we played football, did like, you know, the student clubbings and everything. And I think I think he was the first one that I pitched because again, he's a friend and um, I, I thought, okay, it's, it's, it's a safe zone to even share my crazy ideas with him. Uh, so I, th- I saw that he sort of instantly connected. Um, and then um, he brought someone uh, who's uh, his Shubo, and he's currently the CEO of Alice. I have never met Shubo before, but it was I think I think we discussed about it for ten minutes or fifteen minutes, and I, I realized that I don't know what it was. Again, there was no science behind it. Why I trusted him? Why I felt like okay, this is the person I, I want in my team, or I want to form a team with him. Um, I think. I think sometimes you have to trust something. I don't know. It was probably a gut feeling or something that I felt, okay, this is the person I want to work with. Um, and thankfully I did because he's doing amazing work in, in his own own uh, area. Um, and the other person was uh, Munim Bhai. So he's, he's the CEO of Misfit Technologies. Um, and Munim Bhai, I've known him from, from, a, from like, you know, from university days, we to, but we used to interact on and off. We used to play football together and stuff. But one thing I noticed that um, I thought, so basically I, I was thinking that what do we lack? Like between me, Jamil and Shubo, there's something that we lack. And I figured out that none of us are salesperson, right? None of us can sell things. And that, that is a learning that I got from my first um, two startups or first two companies that, Whatever you build, end of the day, you need to be able to sell it. And I thought, okay, this guy can sell anything. We have a joke inside the office, you know, back then when we started Misfit, that even if we don't have anything to sell, we have chairs and tables and, you know, glasses, glasswares and paper files and everything. And this guy can even sell those off. And maybe we can have one month worth of runway. Um, so, 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 we figured out that this, I figured out that this guy can sell anything. Uh, and I thought yeah. that this is, this is them, something we lack. But and and so all of them are also first time founders. Did they build anything before? Yeah, so I think other than me, um, all three are first time founders. Um, 
but Munimba had a bit more experience um, because he was the uh, MD of you know rocket internet company in Bangladesh and Myanmar. So he sort of had a bit more understanding of managing scale-up um, startups, uh, but none of them had had like built anything before. Um, I think right. I think I was the first one. I was the only one who has built you know two companies, tried, tested, failed, or you know moved out and and and, and stuff. Uh, I remember having this interesting conversation even with Munimbai once where I was trying to, we were trying to pitch an investor and I was focusing a lot on like why we are the right people because I kept explaining that, look, I failed twice, so I know what not to do. And Munimbai was like keeping me, like he was sending me texts, like, why are you talking about our failures? Like they, they will never give us the job. And I'm like, look, some people love failure stories and it feels like this guy wants to hear our failure stories and not our success because everyone's going to pitch in their success stories. Um, so yeah, I think it was an interesting combination. It still is an interesting combination amongst the four of us. So did you end up getting that uh, pitch? Awesome. Yeah, we did. Great. We did. So, okay, so... <laughs> so yeah, sometimes the lesson learned, sometimes fail, failure stories sell as well. Yeah, but I think, I think, I think what... To me, if I'm listening to anyone's uh, failure story, I still probably would like to see the the authenticity in the story. I think it's then I actually would label that person as more authentic than someone who right. would rather hide things uh, while they're given an opportunity and you will not really know right. what they're doing in the dark. So I think uh, I think Absolutely. you ended up building Absolutely. more trust by talking about your failures, if not anything else. Um, so if I if I heard correctly, uh, did any one of your um, so, because Misfit Technologies is an IT tech company, and you build solutions for your clients, but at the same time, you all have your own products as well. Right. Uh, who among you were the uh, CTO or the tech, the tech guy? Did you have any one of them who already had yeah. a tech background, product background? Yeah. So sort that? of. So, so sort of. So Shubo was the CTO. So because so he he's uh, you know he graduated from Buet from computer science. So he is the CTO. Um, Jamil was the operations guy, right? So he was the go-to person if you need to run things smooth. Munim was the sales guy, and I was sort of the guy who would daydream, right? <laughs> okay, can we? How do we? How do we make a pitch deck that looks so dreamy that people <laughs> people would want to give us the work, right? <laughs> and what can we build into the future uh, and, and things like that? So I, th- I think, yeah, I think this is this is something I keep telling people that a lot of CEOs. Um, they they this they want to be like visionary and you know think far into the future, but they also they also have to deal operations. I have the luxury of not dealing with a lot of these operations or tech and sales because I have partners who are doing that. Yeah, no, I think kudos to you for really being able to sort of put together this really amazing group of misfits uh, who ended up actually. Sort of also fulfilling the prophecy of the name, <laughs> and then ended up sort of delivering on it. Um, so tell me more about what exactly are um, were some of the things that you guys are doing now that you have built. Um, maybe a maybe a question for that. So because you are jumping into misfits, um, is this something that you were doing it on the side first before doing it full time, or did you just one day you sort of closed everything and said from tomorrow I start misfit full time? What was it like? Right, so I think I think the first eight months I was actually still working as a 
sort of like a consultant because we needed money to to start things up um and we needed we started hiring people getting an office in Dhaka and and started building the team um Jamil and Shubho they were they 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 started like full time um i think munin bhai came after that within like 6 months i came within like 8 to 10 months so i think within like 8 to 10 months we were all like full time um but before that i was still okay. doing some side hustles morning i was still doing some side hustles and jamil was super very like full time and uh, one of the things we often say for anyone looking to sort of jump off the boat to start a business is to have to give ourselves enough runway so that we have the sort of the disposable savings income that can help us sort of burn through those early days what was your run sort of runway at this point what runway did you give yourself or you promised your wife to have before you actually can nice. uh before so <laughs> so not to worry about burn and crash yeah i think so personally i think i i i had like 6 months um i gave myself and everyone like you know let's let's see what happens in 6 months even if we don't crack it i was hoping that within 6 months we will I will have some signs to either think that okay this is not working or yeah continue doing it but also financially speaking I think I I had like 6 months worth worth of saving um so and and this is something I tell anyone who wants to you know jump ship and start something on their own I think 6 months is a good good amount of time to test your idea um you know be financially a bit more stable so save enough for 6 months and in 6 months either you'll figure out that this is not working so you you want to go back and do something else or you even if you don't crack it because 6 times 6 months is also a very short time to reach like success or show that you know you have you've succeeded but at least you you will see some signs right you might get a client an early early you know sign of encouragement that will help you to say okay can i can i go for another 6 months So so then so what happened then so what happened right. in the first 6 months So so the first 6 months we we were pitching of course and then we got a deal so Misfit uh, Misfit started off again the idea of Misfit was to build technology that was like you know probably a bit early will will get adopted in like next 5 6 years which means that we have to invest a lot in r&d right and and we were investing in r&d but then we also figured out okay we also need a cash uh we also needed cash flow because we're now burning our own money um so i think within 6 months we got an interesting contract from probably it was back then the second or third largest um you know e-commerce company in indonesia then got acquired i think in 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 the i think in 2018 or 17 they got acquired so 2019 they got acquired in 2017 um uh, late 2017 they gave us a contract right which was like maintaining their entire um you know back end front end everything and right out of dhaka and that was it that and that happened within 6 months and we're like okay maybe maybe we couldn't deliver on like you know our misfit idea like we'll build something entirely crazy and and and, and stuff but well we got a decent contract um and let's work on it um so yeah we st- we we started with that and i i think that was after that we didn't have to look back 
And and at this point, your entire engineering team was mostly sort of um, supporting this yeah. uh, um, the, the client, exactly. right? No other new incubation of products. <laughs> no. And how long was it? So how long were you sort of looking after this current client? How long was the retainer? Well, I, th- I think the retainer was for almost a year and a half. Like it was a year and a half deal. But I think we, we worked like four of us, our entire engineering team was basically, because this is our first client and a big deal for us, even though it was not really exciting because to me, I was just, you know, helping an e-commerce to manage their front end and back end and stuff like that. It was not really exciting that we're building something great. Um, but I said, okay, this is good. This is bringing some cash flow, so let's wait on it. So I think after six months, I started like, you know, I started getting that itchy feel that, okay, now we have some cash flow. Now what can we do? Can we start going back to our original idea where we wanted to build amazing products and services and, and take it to the market? Um, so I think the retainer was for one and a half years. Six months, I sat tight. I didn't do like anything, no crazy ideas, nothing. But I think after six months, when once we had some cash in the in the account, and I felt that okay, now we can start burning again to build products. That's how. That's when Alice and I Farmer happened. Okay, so so Alice, I guess, started first before I Farmer, if I am correct. So they both happened like simultaneously, right? So, because these are the two things okay. that we wanted to explore agriculture because of my background i want i i, I w- would lean that way and then alice was sort of like a brainchild of almost four of us because munimbai worked in sales marketing shubho and um, you know jamil right before uh, starting with me they were working for maya where you know a lot of conversation and you know machine learning and uh, you know uh, ai was happening and I was looking at a perspective from like, you know, that idea that looking into the future, what does the future look like? And I was thinking, well, the future is conversation. Um, so, yeah, so that's when both the ideas sort of emerged. So, um, so at this point, six months after the starting of Misfit, you got the first client retainer, which gave you the cash flow, and then you had enough. Um, cash flow to give you the confidence to start building of your own, and that at that point you started sort of building both the Alice and the iFarmer idea. Was this the only sort of funding, so to speak, that you had at this point, yeah. or how were you funding this, uh, you know, extension of the company and the ideas and the dreams? Um, so I, how were you guys basically paying the bills? I think I think most of it came from that first client. Um, and then we were also getting, because of that client, we were also getting some small work. Um, that client was based in Indonesia. They were really happy with their work. So they were client, connecting us to other Indonesian clients. We got some Singaporean clients. Um, and that sort of, so uh, looking back, like it was, it was like a handsome amount of money that Misfit was making, but all of it was being burned on building Alice and I Farm. Got it. So, uh, and, but it's also sometimes because all four of you co founders come from a very, I would say, mature uh, career okay. already by the, before building Misfit. Yeah. So, you yourselves were also, I would say, uh, quite expensive. So, at this point, were you paying yourself enough 
or and how did you manage your sort of uh, part of the paycheck? I think now definitely we were not definitely paying us enough. I think for the longest period of time, I didn't, me and Munimbai, we didn't take, uh, you know, any salary for like almost a year um, because we were also doing some side hustles, as I said, for the first eight, 10 months. Um, but then Jamil and Shubo, they were full time. So they were, pay- they were getting paid, but yeah, it was like nothing even close to what they were making in, the, in, the, in their previous jobs. Um, so definitely it was... But, and, and I also want to share an interesting story. So Jamil, on his first day, like in Misfit, so he basically came to me and he said, I just sold my car today. And I knew like um, how important that car was to him because he's, this is something he bought with his own money of, you know, working over like a lot of years. Like he worked for almost eight, nine years before starting Misfit. So he, he said, well, I just sold my car. And I'm like... Yeah, cool. But then, and, and I was like, so yeah, you're okay, right? Because I knew it was very close to him. But then he said, yeah, no worries. We'll, we'll, I'll buy a better one in like, let's say in like two years time. Um, and he eventually did. But yeah, these, these are the things that, that, you know, of course happened during that time. People selling their cars off, um, people cutting down. We all had to cut down our expenses. Uh, Munimba is the one who loves going out, partying a lot. He had to. He had to, of course, cut down his own expenses, um, and 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 so I, I think it was a combination of all of these things. Um, we because we are matured, I think that helped us to understand very quickly the the ground reality that I'm I'm not making enough, and I might not be making enough for for a long period of time. So how do I manage this? Um, so yeah, I think I think. This all of these things happened. People selling up their car, everyone, you know, winding up our, you know, additional expenses, um, and yeah. Okay, so um, now introduce us a little bit more of what is Alice uh, before we move into iPharma. So Alice is basically a con- conversational tool, but the way it started was basically we wanted to build chatbots, right? So we thought, okay, chatbot back then was still like a new thing. People would explain chatbots to, but no one would even understand what it, what is it. Forget about like how it can help their companies. Um, so it started out as a chatbot company, but then we thought that you know just building chatbot just doesn't help anyone eventually. So current and its current model, it's basically a conversational sales tool which helps um, a small merchant or even like a corporation to manage all the customer queries. Because again, as I said, what we saw back then was that a lot of customer interaction over the next years and now and maybe even into the future from today will happen more real time. It will happen over Facebook or Viber, WhatsApp or anything. It could happen in like different channels um, that the businesses sometimes feel overwhelmed. Like, you know, do I keep like a huge team to manage all this? Um, so that's where, that's where Alice comes in. So all these queries that customers are sharing, um, you know, and wants to interact with the company so they can, they can, or a business, they can do this through Alice. But then what Alice does is also convert these customer queries into, let's say, sales, into, let's say, you know, understanding the customers better, into generating insights from those queries or interactions. 
Um, so that's 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 what Alice is right now. It's it's a full SaaS platform where um, you know automate automating uh, customer query management, automating a sales um, through social media um, and generating insights. Um, those are the three things that that happens uh, primarily happens through Alice. Now it sounds like. Although you started out to build a chatbot, which definitely, I actually remember the same year you guys were sort of bootstrapping the the chatbot. Uh, we were doing the same thing in Graminphone. Uh, we we're also building our chatbot for managing our seventy five million customers, and we ended up building it as well. And almost fifty five percent of all our customers would be attended by the AI before even getting into the real agents, saving a lot of money, but. What I wanted to come back to is that do you think because you had the early access of having the sort of more inside view of the e-commerce world when you are having this client as a retainer, you understood a lot about the pattern and then some of the pain points of these different e-commerce companies where uh, a big part of the funnel actually is sort of lost if it's not really well sort of... Um, Transition throughout the process of the customer interaction with the platform. Do you think that was sort of the reason why you conceived this um, idea? I think, I think the inspiration was. I, I think part. I think. I think the first customer, the e-commerce players that this e-commerce customer that Misfit was working for. I think they helped us to validate the idea, right? Um, that that there is a need for 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 such things. Uh, but I think the idea sort of. Um, sort of formulated from different interactions. So the interactions were mostly about, um, like I think I first um, came in, like learned about the word chatbot when, when I was you know, still working from a development, for a development um, you know, organization. And there was a lot of conversation about like, um, you know, doing surveys. Like we used, in development, we do a lot of surveys for, um, you know, beneficiaries, and 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 it's mostly done with human agents, and and it takes a lot of time. And and I was thinking, well, how can we automate this? Right? Can I have a conversation, and then, you know, I can I can just uh, you know type in the answers, and it gets recorded, and and, and sort of those things. Um, so I think, and, and then Munimbai, him working in in a rocket internet company, of course, he his idea was that how can I automate sales, like. If I not engage like a lot of people, and all of these sales are happening through the social media platforms these days, um, so how can I automate this? So I, th I think, um, and Shubo again coming from Maya, he has already seen some of these happening, right? Because Maya back then was still sort of adopting these automated responses uh, to queries and stuff like that. So I think all of this combined, we thought, okay, this is an idea. But then the whole e-commerce client sort of helped us to validate the idea. Uh, not necessarily they gave us the idea. The idea sort of um, transpired from all three of us. But then, um, yeah, the the, the e-commerce company that we worked for helped us validate that, yes, this is something that is required. But the, but the thing is, we never got to sell them, Alice. So, yeah. So that's that's how you sort of conceived and you ended up building Alice. Now, by this time, you have the e-commerce client uh, I'm guessing that they're soon finishing their retainer. So the Misfit guys, uh, the engineering team is also probably waiting for more work. While you have this product called Alice, 
what's happening in the organization at this point? So right now, of course, actively we are looking for more clients from Misfit because again, we have hired like good engineers. We don't want them to let go. So we started getting some small, you know, some smaller work, uh, but not as large as the first one. And then we figured out that some of these guys are really good engineers. They have some additional capacity that we can utilize. So we, we, we started using some of their capacity. I think most of the capacity for, um, for, for Alice, because Alice was a tech first, you know, it was a tech product that we needed to build. Um, so we started using some of them as, um, you know, as, as engineers for Alice. Um, on this side, we were still like, you know, doing some of the set, doing some smaller work. Um, so yeah, that, that's, that's what was, was happening. Um, I, th- I think my biggest concern back then was what if we don't get another, um, you know, big project for Misfit and what happens to these guys? Because we wanted that, we wanted like, even today, like I, I feel really bad if I have to let someone go. And thankfully we didn't have to do that. Um, um, and yeah, that was, that was a big concern for us. Like, you know, if I'm not getting uh, my next big project, what happens to this guy? Of course, we're using some of their time for outbuilding Alice, but there's still like a lot they can, they can do and, you know, actually be more uh, productive in a way that, you know, works on project that, that brings in cash. Alice was not bringing in anything. And how long, how many years did you have to sort of raise this? child that only needs feeding but doesn't really give you anything in return before you could really have a little bit of stability in terms of the cash flows? I think it was till 2019, right? So Alice, um, I think, ran till 2019 without, because again, we were building, I think till 2019, we were still building chatbots. Um, And I think in 2019, it was actually figured out that it's not, chatbots that we want to build we want to solve a bigger problem um and then you know chatbot as i said in 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 this market was still new so when we go and it was really funny we didn't even know how to price our product some clients would go and charge like thirty thousand dollars and they would say well what do you want thirty thousand dollars for a chatbot and then another client would say, okay, we, we want $1,000. <laughs> so even less, like $300, give us anything. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, th- I think for, for... So so I'm guessing I'm guessing you had a little bit of shock here at this point because the Indonesian e-commerce was probably paying you a decent, yeah. let's say, international yeah, rate. Exactly. Whereas when you're pitching it to just local clients, they're not even recognizing that why would you even pay for exactly. someone uh, at that amount of money? Exactly. And so at this time, were you only pitching to local clients, but also not any of your international uh, client base who could probably see the value in it? So we were, we were pitching to both, um, to local and international. So I think, I think the first couple of clients who bought um, Alice or you know, subscribed for Alice was, I think, came from Myanmar and Indonesia. Uh, Myanmar, because again, Myanmar is a mobile first economy. So everyone, almost everyone has a smartphone. They're connected to the internet. Almost everyone's on Facebook. So it was pretty easy to sell to the brands there. Um, so the first couple of clients came from uh, Myanmar. And then, um, a few also came from Indonesia because there we have already done a few projects. We had, we know people. They trusted us. They said, okay, I'll try this product. Um, and they agreed to pay like a minimum amount of money. So yeah, um, the local clients, I think, I think 
in, in Bangladesh, the first client for a big client for Alice was actually Unilever. So in terms of company, that's, that's a massive deal, but, um, also I think, I think it took us time. We pitched to different, different organizations, different people. No one was ready to take it. And we were not sure, like, how do I sell it? Um, so I think, I think the first brand that we hooked uh, locally was uh, Unilever and that they, they're still our client. And I think they helped us a lot in building the product, uh, in terms of what it is today. Now, since when you started Misfit, it seems like that it was starting out, although wanted to build their own products, which eventually, you know, the Alice's and the iFarmer, um, but you moved into more of an IT company, sort of building IT support or solutions for a potential client. But now that you've cracked Alice and you sort of have this market validation and the product market fit, uh, and since this is a product, it's not necessarily like a sort of IT consultancy services. Um, were you guys still operating like an IT company or at this point you were already starting to think like a startup and thinking of sort of going into the different route of raising a proper VC round and then trying to make sense of the future growth of the company? Um, I th- I think no. I mean, I think I think we were still we still have that IT mindset uh, because even for Alice, it was not like a SaaS model, right? So every client would have their own requirement, and I want the bot to work this way. I want the bot to be designed in this particular way. And e-commerce would want it one different way. I, uh, you know, a bank would want it in a very different way. Uh, a, a brand like Unilever would want it like entirely, you know, in a very different manner. Um, so I think, I think we were still sort of working as like, you know, people would give us, um, uh, a, like a description of what they want and we would, we'd, we'd just build that. So sort of like still going in that mindset. We didn't have like the idea of scalability, building a SaaS model, uh, raising VC money. Those were, and I'm talking about 2019 here. Uh, and we still didn't have that, um, mindset. Um, and, and, even like I, I think none of us probably even understood how 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 um, the whole VC world works. We'd see news as like you know Batao raising, this guy's raising, those guys raising, but we didn't have any clue like how that how that thing even works. Um, we yeah, so like one of one of like you know I was pitching this whole idea and I was even not sure I was just reading up on stuff and these are all like you know very fluffy knowledge that I have about how startups are raising money and I was pitching someone and I was trying to pitch the idea of this startup valuation and funding to someone and he basically said oh so you're not you don't really have anything right these are all like paper money right these are all on paper and I thought of it I was like yeah I mean sounds like it but I don't know how to answer this question Right, so in 2019, I, 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 it, it, it was the right thing to say that none of us had any idea about fundraising, about you know VC money and, and stuff. So when was the next big milestone for Alice? Um, when did you um, sort of finally realize that you needed to raise a round and then you did raise your, uh, if I remember, the seed round of half a million dollars uh, earlier this year, if I'm not wrong? So that was this the starting point of graduating the entire product? Yes, I think I think it was in twenty twenty one. 
when I think mid early 2021, when we started, um, sorry, 2020, early 2020, when we started thinking about, okay, um, now we understood a bit about SaaS um, and how things work uh, in, in the SaaS model. Um, and, you know, the part about scalability, building, building a platform where it's not like building customized product for, for every client that walks through the door. Um, and also, I think I think what what happened was look, before even till mid twenty nineteen, all of us were involved in Alice Misfit, and then iPharma was also sort of evolving, right? But then what happened was we took an active uh, and conscious decision that we need to focus on on, on 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 stuff. It can't be like four of us running around for for all different things. And there were like a lot of problems that we ran into. Like we were pitching to like you know in twenty twenty. Um, I think late 2019, we started pitching for Alice for to different investors um, because by then we figured out a bit and, and we thought, okay, let, let's start pitching. Um, so what happened was like, you know, I would be the CEO of Alice on LinkedIn in the morning um, and then I would become the CEO of Misfit in the evening because I had another client pitch. Um, for Misfit in the evening and probably one VC pitch in the morning for, for Alice. So I'd, I'd go to my LinkedIn, change it to like CEO Alice in the morning and then change it again to like CEO uh, Misfit in the evening for, for, for another pitch. Um, so yeah, it was, and, and it, it was same for all four of us. We just continuously change our LinkedIn designations depending on, you know, what, which company you're pitching for. Uh, and, and I think I think we figured out that this is this is wow. I've never heard that. So it, I figured out that it, we figured out that it's, it's 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 a lot of hard work changing LinkedIn designations. So 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 we thought, okay, let's start focusing. So what happened was uh, Shubo took over Alice, and this this is when he started like you know going really deep because now it was him, and of course we were we were sort of supporting him. And I, I think it, it helped him to some extent because uh, we were still having these arguments about what the product would look like, what are the features that we can build on top of that. But end of the day, we agreed that it's his decision that that you know what what he, what he wants to build, and he could he was taken out of Misfit, he was taken out of iFarm, where he was entirely focused on uh, Alice, and that helped. Uh, him to you know sort of go into like a you know more deep into the product and what what he can build and 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 stuff and that's when we started pitching to VCs more seriously and I think in 2021 we finally um, got um, the seed funding uh, but I think one thing I should mention here across all three companies because in 2019 we didn't understand how uh, fundraising and VC money works. So our companies were never built uh, with the assumption that, okay, we will eventually raise money and that's, that's, that's how we want to live our life. So from day one, because we didn't understand, if we understood this, maybe we would have taken very different um, approach. But from day one, we were not really, um, I want to say, really hungry or gritty or whatever you call it, or, or you know, looking for VC money. We wanted to build companies that would be sustainable um, in itself. Yeah, but I think also an important point here is that um, there's a whole different due diligence process when you are raising a proper like a VC round or, or from an institution for that matter. And, and that requires certain readiness as an organization. 
in terms of all your paperwork, your your accounts and everything. So I think that's probably also a prerequisite anyone thinking of starting to build a company uh, and hoping to raise a round from the VCs. From day zero, they have to make sure that their work is sort of done in yeah, sort of absolutely, already absolutely. ready for the due diligence, which saves a lot of headache and a lot of uh, issues as well. Um, so let's fast forward. So now Alice is sort of uh, doing well, uh, received the seed funding, and I'm sure the team is already building a lot of stuff. And I'm really looking forward to uh, interview uh, Alice's team actually in my future uh, podcast for sure to know more about what they've been up to. Um, but let's let's now switch gears to iFarmer. Um, something uh, sort of going back to the beginning of a conversation of your passion and your sort of strong desire to build something in the agricultural space. Um, what is iFarmer and uh, what have you been doing right now? And and right. so what's I, th- happening? I think I, I, when I talk about iFarmer, I also have to share that there, there's a story behind iFarmer because. When we started iFarmer, it was not what it is today. Um, so our, our idea was that, as I said, the question that I always had was, who's going to produce, um, you know, food for for our next generation, and and can we sustain our food production? Um, and we thought, okay, again, living in urban spaces, sometimes we get really, even though I've worked in rural areas, right? But because I live in a city, and I thought, well, what can we do in the city? So the first model that we that struck with us was that okay there's so much like you know um, space on people's rooftops so can we go and build like urban gardens on people's rooftops and then build we had a grand vision a grand idea that okay we'll go and build um, you know um, gardens on, on on you know veggie fruits gardens on people's rooftops people can consume it themselves. And also, if they have access, they can. We, we were also like, you know, creating a marketplace where you can exchange or, or sell to other people in your community and other places. We would deliver, do everything. And so we were like a micro grocery uh, thing. That that was the whole idea. Um, and that was a, that was like a fantastic idea. I was so in love with that idea that um, I thought, well, this is it. Um, and interestingly, there were a lot of support for this idea. So. I remember me, Jamil, we us pitching in um, a GP accelerator, um, and they loved it. They were like, "Well, this this is like a brilliant idea. When can like you know can you guys come and sign the agreement and stuff?" And I don't know what like I just I thought, well, this is a great idea, but uh, doesn't seem like it's it's going to take up. Like does, doesn't seem like it's going to scale because we were also facing challenges about. People would kick us out of their apartments because they don't want us in our apartment. Some people would say, well, you know what? I'm not sure who owns the rooftop because I live in an apartment. I don't know who owns the rooftop. You have to go and convince the, um, you know, the committee that manages the, the whole apartment. And so we were, we were getting like a lot of positive feedback, but we were not entirely sure if this is what we wanted. So, and looking back, I think we didn't take that deal from um, GP Accelerator because we were personally not sure. We were not confident. Of course, a lot of people said, well, look, man, this is this is GP Accelerator. You get in, they're going to make you big, whatever the idea is with, with everything that GP comes in with. But we were not convinced ourselves. So we, we opted out for, of that deal. 
And looking back, I think we made the right call because once you, once you get, um, you know, in partnership with Grameen Fund, I would have like thought twice to back out of that idea because now I have a big partner and I can't just go and say, well, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. Um, so after, after I think six months of trying that and figuring it out that this all works. So I think in uh, around 20, late 2018, we thought, okay, let's go back to where food production starts. And that's the farmers. And because I, th I think I had a bit of unfair advantage because of my 10 years of work, I already knew, as I said at the beginning, that I worked, I knew the problem very well. I didn't know the solution back then. Um, so I already instantaneously knew what the problems are that needs to be solved. And, and the first thing that needs to be solved was financing. And we didn't, and then now it comes to the part of building the solution. Okay. Now we understand the problem because farmers need financing, but where does this financing come from? It's not going to come from our pocket. So we went out and reached to banks. We talked to like our network in the banking industry, microfinance. And of course, none of them were interested. They couldn't even see the potential of this. Um, they're like, well, you know, farmers, yeah, okay, whatever. It's, it's a good cause, but we are, we, you don't have enough traction. We don't trust your system or how are you, what will happen if the farmers run away? That's, that was the first question we would always get. I didn't have an answer. My answer was, well, you know what? Farmers won't run away. So that was a very naive answer to a question that was very seriously, you know, uh, pointed at us and we didn't know the answer. Um, so the first thing we did was we thought, so I, I, so one thing I do, and I, I ask a lot of founders to do this is to use Google. So when you don't know the answer, Google probably is one of your best friend. Um, so I started looking and I personally believe that, uh, anything that you're thinking of building today or whoever is thinking to build today, someone somewhere in the world has probably tried tested, failed, right? So I started looking at what are other models that are that are working. So I found like this fantastic company in Indonesia called um, Paniha. Today, they're probably valid. They're probably, you know, going for a unicorn status and stuff. Back then, they were, they've just started. There's this another company called iGrow. Um, they were funded by 500 um, startups. And I thought, well, these guys have found a fantastic model of taking people's money making sure that gets invested in agriculture and make, giving people a return. So why not try this? So initially we uh, reached out to friends and family. Uh, we raised about $17,000 and we handpicked, because we can't lose this money, <laughs> we handpicked 50 farmers um, who wanted this financing. And that was that was the journey of iFarmer. And today we have just scaled it up. So currently we have almost 40,000 registered farmers. We have around 15,000 active farmers and we are almost close to $10 million in farm financing. It started off with 50 farmers and $70,000. Wow. No, that's, that's very impressive. What you essentially mentioned is that you started with an urban farming concept when it comes to the first idea of iFarmer. And what I what struck with me is that it's not coming from someone who just sort of let's say Googled or saw a potential. It's basically someone who has been in this agricultural space for 10 years, who himself mentioned later on that I went back to my roots of where I actually knew more data about the farmers or the farming related, you know, unit economics. Uh, and that apparently eventually is what the 
the current version of iFarmer is building. Now, why do you think that despite that 10 years of experience, what sort of sort of overshadowed that experience and that credibility and a bit of a vision already into the market um, to, to do something urban gardening or urban farming? Um, I think, and again, I, I, I know the answer, but I also don't want to ge- generalize here, but I, I, and I will only speak for myself. But I think, and I, I think you can figure out a trend here because um, when it comes to like building a company, um, probably I wanted to build a company in a city where, where I know people, where I, where I have the networks and I, where I could feel that because this is a company where it's not like a software, right? You just, you just, you, it's not like Alice where you code something and you distribute, right? There is a lot of operational hassle that you have to take. Now comparing taking that operational hassle in a rural village in, Rangpur versus taking an operational hassle in Dhaka, I felt, well, this is, this is more comfortable. Um, and, and it seems like I could go and convince my next door neighbor to give us his rooftop versus convincing a farmer <laughs> to take, take money and, you know, services and inputs from, from me. Um, I think it starts with this whole comfort zone, um, because it's easy it, and it seems like it's easy to build something here. Um, versus building something with a farmer in Rangpur, right? Um, so I think it was, that was it. I was just biased towards how do I make it? How, what's the easy, quick win here? And I thought, well, this seems, this could be easy, which was not. But, but uh, so now that definitely, that comfort zone not only cost you some months, half a year worth of time, it also sort of cost you to not accept that GP accelerator sort of entry. Um, now, what was on your mind at this point of time? What were you thinking? Were you already upset with your decision? Were you kind of questioning and doubting yourself at this point? Um, of course, um, I think I was. Da- I think we were. I was questioning um, because, again, I said we had a grand vision, a grand idea, everything sorted out, planned. And then when it didn't work, and I could have felt really good about myself if we, me and Jamil, we took that GP accelerator deal because that was a quick win, right? We could quickly go and show people like, you know what, we got accepted to GP accelerator, so this is fantastic. Um, and that not taking that deal was also like we were we argued about it, and eventually we both thought that well, it's 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 best not to take it for for the time being. Um, we were definitely in self-doubt. I was, I was really doubtful of, okay, what, what happens now? Six months gone. Um, we didn't really build anything. Whatever we built, whatever grand vision we had, we didn't take, we didn't, that didn't work out. We didn't take a deal that was there. It seemed like a good deal. We went against it. Um, so definitely, yeah, in a, in a lot of self-doubt, I want to say. So I think one of the um, sort of my opinion or my point of view based on um, the last few years of investing and also advising startups that I have is when we usually invest in a startup, we invest in the people, we invest in the team. And and in many ways, we also know that the idea we often invest in can be pivoted into completely something different because that actually happens in the first few years of a company because finding the product market fit is so important. 
So on a hindsight, when you said that you decided to not go to GP Accelerator, I feel it was it was a bit of a show of your also, I guess, moral values that you almost felt that it'll be wrong of you to kind of uh, sort of take something you know out there by getting into the accelerator, but not eventually pursue it. Um, and then that probably your moral compass kind of took over the decision. But I think from a startup point of view, even if you went into the GP accelerator and then eventually said, "Hey, our initial idea didn't work, so we are pivoting, and you know we are moving into the I farmer of today," it still would have been the case. So I don't want you to have any, you know, sort of a, a FOMO for not being able to take on that uh, route. But I definitely think that um, I personally wouldn't advise. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was still too early, right? And. Yeah, it was too early, and we didn't um, we didn't understand it. We were also thinking we don't want to because there's a fear, right? You don't want to disappoint people. Um, then what if they're not going to help you in the future? Right? It was probably out of that. Yeah, absolutely. But one thing I'm also noticing is that by this time in 2019, 2020, uh, the startup is no longer a vague concept. For you, uh, what you said when you were building, let's say, Misfit, for example, or let's say when you're building Amar CV back in 2010, 12. Um, but yet, whenever you're building something, you somehow are thinking from the lens of wanting to solve a problem or trying to build something as opposed to saying that, hey, I'm going to start this sexy thing called startup. Um, why has it been the case for you, you think? Um- I think I think I, I don't think we we looked at this whole sexy thing called startup uh, in that way. Um, we were more inclined towards building a business, and then eventually we figured out. As I said, we were we didn't even know how startups work. We didn't even understand the valuation, the funding process, and everything. All we all and I think I was amongst the four of us. I was the only one who's reading up like every. Like was reading up a lot on, on startups raising fund, and I was trying to figure out like how does this model work? Why would people give money on an idea or something? Um, and you know how would these companies go on and raise millions of dollars? Um, so I, th- I don't think it started off as like uh, you know we wanted to build like a sexy startup and, and you know get valuation funding. It was, it was more about like we wanted to build a business, and eventually we figured out how the startup model works. Um, and I think it was me who started a lot of reading up on, on, on asking a lot of questions. Um, I think I was asking a lot of questions back then, like um, to, you know, Wasimhai uh, from Chaldal about, I, I, I used to work with his wife in, in Catalyst and I'd always like, you know, keep asking questions like, how do you, how do you raise funding? Why would you raise funding? And, and, and then how does it raise, how does this even work? Because I worked in development, right? Where people would give money as grant. And then the whole idea of, you know, selling your equity um, for, for a piece of your company, is, I couldn't figure out how that works. So I think, I think it, 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 was, it was a learning curve um, before we understood um, yeah. how startups work. And even now, I, I won't, it sounds very sexy from the outside, but inside, I don't think it's, it's, it's really that sexy. Um, it's, it's still a difficult thing to build. So... As you said that you started fully focusing on the iFarmer after the pivot that you made, the first pivot, and to really focus on sort of solving the distribution 
and you know almost like you know creating a fund for this farmer so that they actually can invest and create more value out of that funding. That's why it's the agri uh, agri fintech. Um, how? What was the first product? What was the MVP of that product like? And um, and how many sort of uh, crazy days that you had to spend into figuring out that uh, was it the right one or not to get the product market fit? I think I think the first version of the product, as I said, we were we just figured out that okay, uh, we have identified like you know about fifty farmers and they needed something. Uh, they needed finance to start with, so we went out with friends, the friends and family, to collect that funding. Um, that was the first, uh, you know, the first um, MVP behind the second version of iFarmer. Um, we didn't have like any any app or anything. We didn't even have a Facebook page. It was because it was friends and family. Uh, what we had was an Excel file um, and you know form that we printed. Uh, and we used that form to go to all those 50 farmers and their houses to just collect data. Just, just a basic analysis of, okay, how much do they need? Can they, you know, how much can they make out of these, you know, cattle farm? We were targeting cattle farmers you know, to start with. Um, and honestly, that was it, right? All we had was a Google, like, uh, you know, an Excel file where we would keep all track of the money that people are giving in and how much we have to return and what is happening in the farm and stuff like that. And we had a form, a printed form that we went out and, and collected data from the farmers. Um, I think the next version was when we when we sort of wanted to actively reach out and test whether people who are not our friends and family, will they trust us, right? And that's when we, I think our first version of an external model was like, oh, we opened a Facebook group. Uh, where we would add, um, you know, people, uh, and again, I think I think it was really we asked. Even then, we actually asked our friends and family to invite their friends, um, and if anyone was interested, they would they can come to our office, talk to us, and event. Yeah, you know, at the beginning, it was a lot of conversation with people because the first time I explained this idea to anyone who does not know me, basically said, "Oh, this sounds like a Ponzi scheme." Um, <laughs> it, 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 it took me a lot of time and I, I have to basically honestly I have to sell my background like where I come from and that you know I, I used to go I used to emphasize a lot on you know what I worked with World Bank I worked with CARE I went to Swiss Contact do I look like someone who'd run a Ponzi scheme um, so, so that's, that, there's a lot of selling myself um, to make people believe in, in, in what we were doing uh, and simultaneously, of course, we were onboarding more farmers, but still uh, using that printed form, collecting farmer data and trying to understand, you know, how much money would they need? Is it going to be profitable or not? And stuff like that. So that was, that was the first version of uh, iFarmer as it is today. So right now, so if I understand, this is a bit of an online-offline model still. Uh, so the recruitment of the farmers are taking place offline through your own due diligence, your team on the ground going and making sure that they hire the right people, and then you're creating sort of uh, the investment pool by through your other channels. So right now, do you still collect investments online, or is it purely still manual right now for you? Oh no! So now everything is sort of um, online. So we have a. We have an app for the farmers, so that that printed form um, 
actually helped us to build an app and also gave us great insights where we figured out that building an app for the farmers is probably the probably not the right thing to do, uh, especially in Bangladesh. So we went through an assisted model. So we have an app uh, which is used by agents. So think of like, you know, independent agents uh, who can download our app, they become our agents and they start onboarding farmers. Um, so that process is now really automated. Like, so before it used to take us, like when, when we were in paper form, it used to take us like 10, 15, I think about 20, to 25 days to do the verification the of the farmers and then you know from the farmers up the KYC and everything right now and it's to take us like 25 up to 25 days to disperse the funds or the inputs that the farmers are looking for now it takes us like seven to ten days and we might eventually bring it down to three to five days so now we have like a fully digital digital um, you know onboarding system a KYC platform that is connected to like the government database of NIDs and everything uh, on the back end we have also done some you know we're building a credit score engine for the farmers um, so all of these things are happening on the other end for the investors uh, I think I think till 20 early 20 20, we were still doing things on WhatsApp, on Facebook, on, and then stuff like that. We had a website, a basic <coughs> website, um, and people could order through the website, but there's a lot of uh, you know interaction that had to be done manually. Uh, but then in, around mid 2020, we uh, launched an app uh, for the investors as well. Um, so now the investors can download the app, put in their banking details, do a registration and, and, and stuff. They can choose the fund that they want to invest in. And yeah, everything happens um, you know, uh, through the app. So, and when you were building this product, pivoting from the original product, when did you sort of realize that this is the right product? This is the product that you want to build further on. When did you start seeing that traction? Is it the the money that you received from your friends and families who validated the sort of the sort of the lending model? Um, and how so? How did you prove them that you actually can invest this money uh, into these farmers, and then they actually will be in many ways will be able to generate profit for them? And how were these investments a better modes of investment for anyone whoever wants to be an investor than to put their money into any of the existing investing you know um channels yeah so i think i think it was in 2018 or 2017 when the bank deposit rates were going down so people were already sort of frustrated around that and i, I think we quickly figured out that um even our even the the early investors they were coming back right and they were coming back with with a larger ticket size and we wanted to sort of deep dive like why is that happening why why are some of these people like you know coming back and with with bigger ticket size and then we figured out that looking outside and sometimes it's also important to look outside into what is happening in the economy what is happening in the market and we figured out that um, people have already sort of started losing trust on the stock market, right? I myself used to trade in the stock market and then I, I have sort of, um, you know, given up on that. Um, and, and by then people are also getting frustrated with the bank deposit rates. It was, it was going, going down. I think we had a double digit, um, you know, uh, deposit rate and, and then it was like going down to like single digit and now it's, I don't know, it's probably three, four percent. 
and the return that we were giving, of course, initially just to lure people in, we were we didn't keep any profit or any margin for ourselves. We gave whatever return was coming from the farms were entirely passing it on to the onto the investors. So the annualized return was almost forty percent, and who would not want to take that uh, instead of like you know seven eight percent that you, you were getting from banks, which was the most common um, you know type of investment that people would do. Uh, but I, I think we also kept it under control because that was always in our mind that we uh, don't want to turn out to be like uh, you know over promising. So we didn't take um, too much money that we can't really actually deploy in the farms and make sure there's a good return. So we kept it in a very tightly in a, in a very controlled way. And of course, there were questions back then. We met with some early VCs and stuff, and they would say, "Okay, this is great, but you know what? This is not scalable." Because you you are like you know keeping things in in very tight control, uh, and you can't take like a lot of money. You can't even think of taking a million dollars from 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 people. Um, and I, I think till 2019, like end of 2019, 2020, we we would still have we were dealing with about uh, $300,000 um, that you know people invested, which is actually looking back, that was actually not a lot of money but back then that was like a lot of money for us we were like this because this is not my money it's someone else's money and they're they're, they're giving me the responsibility to invest it in, in farms and then give them a return but when we were talking to like pe- people to to understand the model you know a lot of um vcs and other startup founders they said oh, okay yeah okay this is, this is a great model but you know what this is not scale like how will you scale in in such a controlled manner um, but I, I, I think looking back, that helped us to build trust and credibility because we didn't go, yeah, we didn't go all out and say, well, yeah, okay, let's 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 take a few thousand crore taka from people and then not sure what to do with it. Um, yeah, we didn't do that. So, what's the total number of farmers that are your beneficiaries right now, and how many people are sort of registered lenders so far in your platform? Um, so currently we have, uh, so in terms of far- registered number of farmers, we have almost uh, 40,000 and number of active farmers. So by active, we mean either they're taking finance or they're, they're taking inputs from us. Um, that's about 15,000 uh, spread across 10 districts in Bangladesh. Um, and in terms of investors, uh, currently we have about 2,000 investors. So... Again, we didn't so so we didn't really go all out, right? So because this this two thousand, it might sound it's it's not a lot of people, but um, our focus was always on the farmers, not on the investors. Um, so we didn't really go and all, all out and build more more customer base on the investor side because we already have a loyal base of investors who are coming back, right? So they're getting their money, uh, they're getting the return, they come back with. A bigger tickets and uh, what exactly um, is the sort of turnaround period for the amount of money they're putting in? What's the cycle like? So, so the cycle is usually like four months, six months, and um, it was we had something about a year, but now we have shortened it down to like eight months. We still have, I think, a few farms that we launch because of the cycle of the farm. It's usually one year, but yeah, so it would be four months, six months, and uh, a year. So what's the big dream with iFarmer? Where are you taking it? Uh, 
next year onward? Um, so the dream is right now the dream is to scale. Um, there are about um, 20 million farmers in the country, uh, and people keep like some people keep asking me when are you expanding outside Bangladesh, and I'm like, look, we haven't even scratched the surface in the country. There's 20 million farmers, almost 80 percent of them are unbanked or does not have access to like formal credit, um, and we have only reached like 40,000 of them. So it's like still scratching the surface. Um, so the idea is to basically reach um, to like, we we are targeting to reach a million farmers by 2025. That's, that's the first thing. And again, uh, of course, the vision is much bigger. Sometimes people might think it's, I, I call it my evil plan. Um, so, the, so, so the plan is, the evil plan is um, that uh, at some point, iFarmer would uh, become like a household name for the farmers where if they want to buy something, like their inputs, they want to get finance, they want to sell their products because these are the three things that they want. But even beyond, like, you know, I, a farmer wants insurance for their product or a farmer wants insurance for himself. Um, the first thing that they will go to or the first name that they'll remember will be iFarm. Um, that's, that's, that's the evil plan in, in a way that some, so I, I call it an evil plan because some people say, oh, well, you are going to be a monopoly and then, you know, whatever, what, what if you become so big and you, you entangle the farmer in, in you know, uh, sort of in a trap, you do trap the farmer, you want to trap the farmers. I'm like, look, a monopoly can be a good thing or a bad thing. And again, I don't, I'm not using the word monopoly here. I'm saying that we want to be a household name for the farmers where they feel comfortable, they feel um, trusted, and they feel um, you know, confident whenever they want a service um, for their farm and eventually maybe for themselves. Yeah. No, so I think um, I feel that in many ways what, let's say, the microfinances have done to Bangladesh, like Grameen, Brack, through their access to many parts. I, I would say those were the you know 1.0 uh, of microfinancing, the early stage of the country in the very basic necessities. But um, as the world is shifting towards um, this phase where it's not only about being able to lend people this small fraction of some amount of money uh, uh, to build something, rather to really, A, to help them build at scale. At the same time, I think the big problem that you mentioned at the beginning, which is to feed the millions uh, uh, in the country, and then eventually, you know, in by 20, uh, 2050, the world will be having a population of 10 billion people. Yeah, and Bangladesh will have a... Bangladesh will have a population of 230. Yeah, exactly. Right? 250, yeah, 250, yeah. And, and and at that rate, I mean, if we really don't have a way of increasing the sort of the yield and the production, uh, while there's a declining trend of the farmers or the next generation picking up farming, I think we're definitely quite much in a trouble. Um, I want to kind of now take a step back and go all the way back to your childhood, because many of the audiences who are probably listening right now is thinking that, so we understand this is someone who has 
been a serial entrepreneur. He's been continuously solving problems and somehow he's been extremely lucky uh, or being able to weather whatever that went through this last couple of years of journey of building things. Has it been the case always in your life? Were you like this when you were a kid growing up? Um, tell us, first of all, a little bit about your childhood. Take us back to who you were, uh, where were you born, and who was Fahad like uh, when he was a little kid? Yes, I think I think I was I was always a very um, I was very um, you know an introvert kid. I, I wouldn't like go out and, and, and talk to a lot of people. Um, and but one thing I think I grew up with was sports. Um, for for a very early for for, for early stay age, I, I grew up in in Mirpur. Um, then I lived in in the cantonment area, and, and I was lucky enough that I always had like a field nearby, um, and, and and that really helped me um, to sort of interact, uh, to network, and also probably build my competitive side. Uh, but again, in a sports, you know, you still have to play by the rules, even though you're you're competitive, right? And 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 when I look back, I think. Um, I think almost 90% of the people that I know today, somehow or the other, I have sort of a sports connection with them. The network that I've built is, has always been for some, like even for Jamil. I think me and Jamil, we connected because we both support the same team, which is, you know, Manchester United. And we're not really proud at the moment, but, uh, but for some reason, we, we sort of connect at, at that level. Um, so yeah, I think I think growing up, and I, I went to I went to a school, and uh, which is called uh, you know uh, Shine English Medium School, and also I decided to go to that because this was a school which was not really well known, and it was like an English medium school, which is back then really like you know they they were just starting off. So I think my parents wanted me to send to a more you know well known school, of course. Uh, but I actively chose like this school because when I went inside the first day, I saw like three, four big fields, and I was like, "This is the school I want to go to." <laughs> so I think I think sports has been a big part of my life, um, and yeah, with even even you know the way I know you is basically we used to play together. Um, I played with the brothers, so yeah, I think I think I think it was, it was sports has connected me a lot, and I think at home I was always again. At home and again with with a wider audience, I was always very reserved. I think more before I say something, um, and I, I I yeah I think I think a lot um, before I, I I I would speak. Um, I think I think these days it has changed a bit. I, I speak more and probably think less. But growing up, I I'd always think more and and um, you know, say less. Uh, my parents, and, and I think that's something I, I have to say, is that um, I said they gave me an NOC, uh, but I think I think from a very early stage they have that confidence because um, there's there's three things that my parents always say. Like you know, one thing, the first thing is um, they would never tell me that you know do whatever you want, live your dream, not those kind of fluffy stuff. They would, they would always say like you know manage your expenses, whatever you're doing. Make sure your earning, um, uh, your 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 earning is is not coming from any ill 
sources or, or you know, there, there's no ill gains um, that you're making out of other people or yeah, stuff like that. So make sure it's, it's, it's according to my mom, um, it's, it's all halal, right? Uh, no haram earning. Um, and, and, and the last thing they, they would always um, tell me is that, uh, again, coming from middle class um, family, they would always keep telling me that, you know, um, you don't have to be too big, right? Just, just be satisfied with whatever you have and, you know, whatever you can take, but don't try to be, like, too big. Eventually, you're not going to enjoy all of this. So, yeah. I think these are the three things that our parents keep telling me. And uh, they're still so telling me the same thing. now that you have quite all changed your professions over the years from being that secured um, from a society's point of view, very well positioned, World Bank consultant, having his own consultancies, to now building products and solutions for farmers. How do they uh, define their son right now? How do they introduce uh, what is IFAS doing right now? Uh, that's that has been a huge struggle for them <laughs> because even even when I started my first job because you know my my it would have been so much easier for my mother to introduce me as a banker I know he works at a bank um, so he would be, she would basically go and say oh my works uh, my son works at an NGO and then people would come and tell me oh okay you work as an NGO and then I felt a bit bad because. NGO has like a like when people tell you with a certain tone like oh you work for an NGO it felt like oh it, you couldn't do anything good so you work for an NGO NGO was also like another sector <laughs> which was sort of like you know looked down on like you couldn't go to yeah. BAT or you couldn't work for Unilever you did you did your BBF from North South and you work for an NGO right then I had to yeah. like explain them like okay this is not just a regular NGO I work in private sector development blah 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 all these dragons I don't know if uh, people would understand but it was also very difficult for my mother um, to to explain this um, and even yeah. my father to explain this thing uh, now I think I think it's still a struggle for them like the phase where I was working for World Bank it got a bit easy for them right what does what does your son do he works for the World Bank and it's very easy to say that. Um, you don't need an explanation like what does he do and blah blah blah. Uh, now I think I think they they're still learning. Um, I keep explaining to them every now that every every now and then what I do. But I think now they've gotten to a space where they don't probably have to explain to people what, what I do. Uh, but I, I remember they had this struggle um, to explain what it, what is it that their son does, like what kind of consultant is he and, and stuff like that. And yeah, it was it was probably hard on them. <laughs> I, I, I have something uh, I'll propose. You should try it on your parents and see if they can uh, introduce you with this uh, pitch better. So you basically tell them that, Mom, I actually am the banker that you wanted me to be. I'm basically, I'm the banker for the farmers. I'm kind of, I find investments for the farmers and I help them grow. In a way, essentially, I'm like a, the digital bank for them. So maybe oh God, that might be like my son. My son, my my son owns a bank, not just a banker. He owns a bank where he has a vault of money. He sends money to the farmers oh, and changing yeah, lives. Yeah. So that probably is a better way of thinking. <laughs> you never know. Um, then what but comes up uh, I want to. Sp- <laughs> <laughs> I want to. I want to come back to your childhood again. So uh, you were. You said you were introverted, and you uh, had certain affinity towards. Um, sports and all of that um as you were sort of uh, passing through your teenage years 
Um, did you involve yourself in any activities where you were sort of trying to be entrepreneurial or, or did you even have any sorts of, you know, uh, part-time jobs that, you know, gave you a first taste of making money at a very early age? Yes, I don't think I was very entrepreneurial, um, but I think I did the regular stuff. So I, when I was, uh, I think right after O-levels, um, so I did my O-levels, uh, after sitting for my first part of O-levels, I realized how expensive O-level exams are. Uh, and then I thought, well, okay, how can I, how can I help and contribute? Um, so I started taking, uh, doing tuitions, right? So that was the most, uh, common thing to do, uh, back then. So I started, um, doing tuitions and uh, I did that through my, you know, to my O levels and then to my A levels. And that would give me some pocket money, even, even, you know, pay for some of my, uh, tuition fees and stuff like that. So I think at one point I was doing three tuitions at a time. That was that was the most I could do um, at a time, and that that helped. I think that helped me to even understand, interact with people who are outside my comfort zone. Right. So even when when you're teaching someone, um, you're interacting with someone. You have to make sure that they understand. You're you're interacting with their parents. Um, and stuff like that. So that helped you. To, you have to manage parents, right? When when you're when you're, when you're when you're hostile, you even have to manage parents' expectations, um, and 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 stuff like that. So that that's what I did. And I think uh, first year of university, I started working for like a for like a business magazine. Back then, they did it worked for six months, but they did they didn't take off. But that business magazine also again, I think I, I did things to sort of get us up out of my comfort zone because part of that business magazine was for me to write features and back then even you know I stood in all of these things were not there so the whole idea of a business magazine was still pretty new I'm talking about 2006 um, five um, so I would go out and interview people um, to collect uh, these are like you know like you know they let's say the CEO of Roma Froze or, or people like that so my boss would make the connection. I'd go and just, you know, talk to them and, and um, try to extract stuff and write a feature on on, on, on them. Uh, another thing that job helped me was to get used to Google, right? A lot of these feature articles, I basically go to Google, do a lot of research, try to find out data. And even today, like, I, I think um, I, I use Google like uh, anything. I'd go and find all sort of data on that. Um, yeah, I think I think that was like growing up. Those are the things I was I was doing. So tuitions, and then first year of university, I did that uh, job at the magazine. Great. Um, we're very much at the end of the um, the last segment of the interview, where I ask my guests some quick rapid fire questions. Um, so feel free to answer as quick as possible. Uh, no thinking required. So the question, first question would be, what wakes you up in the morning? My daughter. Um, what was the most epic of all failures in your life that you had so far? Oh, wow. Well, that's a tough one. Uh, I think the most epic failure was the first version of iPad. That's still one of the most epic things. And what did you learn from that? I learned that grand visions don't work. Uh, the grand, grand plans don't work. Um, you have to learn every day. Uh, making a big plan and then trying to make it work 
and trying to retrofit everything into that plan is actually counterproductive uh, because we don't live in a linear world. It's a very complex world and we're not God. Uh, we're human beings end of the day and we can't predict the future. So making a grand plan and try, trying to execute it and try, trying to like put every effort to make sure that, you know, your grand plan doesn't fail is just not worth it. Um, if you could turn back time and talk to your 18-year-old self, yeah. what would you tell him? Oh, that's easy. I, I would tell him, you know, just learn coding. <laughs> like, don't, don't, don't go and study, uh, you know, business or economics that I did. Um, I would have gone and told my 18-year-old self that, you know, um, get into computer science. Okay. Um, if you... Where to give any advice to any aspiring entrepreneurs considering to start a business this year or now at any time? What would you tell them? Um, it's very easy. I think I think that I, I only tell them like you know whatever your idea is doesn't matter. As I said, no grand plans. Um, try to take one step at a time. But the most important thing is find a team. That's it. I don't think I would have come this far if I had if I did not build that team. Um, and as I said earlier, that there's no science behind building that team. There's no formula. You just have to, you know, believe in something, your gut feeling, your instincts, blah, blah, blah. But, um, the first thing is you need that support system. Uh, and in today's world, it's very difficult to build a business. Of course, there are examples, but it's very difficult to build a business on your own. You definitely, definitely need a team and go find that first before you look for money and you know resources and office space and everything go find the team first so that brings me to the question uh what does making money mean to you um making money means to me that i am making money while my whole uh like you know when i'm making money i also want to make sure that people who works with me people who uh work um, for me, people who I work for, they're all making money as well. I don't think I'll feel comfortable uh, making tons of money and reaching at the top and I look around and there's no one there. Uh, I have to look down to find people. I, I really don't think that I, I will enjoy that. Um, it has to be everyone who makes money or yeah, no one makes that much. Um, a question I ask, it's a stupid question, but probably I'll still ask, are you a millionaire? Um, I am. Um, if you had $100 million to spend on charging, let's say changing one industry in Bangladesh and no bureaucracy, no red tapes, um, you can do whatever you want to do with that money. Which industry would it be and uh, what would you do? Um, other than where I'm working now? Like, can be this as well. Yeah, no, it's first choice is uh, will always. It can be, be. it can be your own company for <laughs> sure. But yeah, I, I'm talking yeah, about industry. Yeah, but, but let's say if I have to pick an industry, I will pick um, health, the health industry, the health sector, um, because I feel there's a lot of things that needs to be done, and even probably a hundred million won't be enough. The three most influential people in your life. They can be, you know, your direct relations or anyone you idolize. Tell me what. Um, so, my father, my mother, and my wife. Can I add a fourth one? Um, 
Sure. <laughs> um, the fourth one would be my co-founder, Jamil. Um, he has influenced me a lot. Okay. And um, it's a, also a funny question. Uh, if you had one, if you had to eat one meal for the rest of your life, what would it be? Um, biryani. Katsu biryani. I repeat. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't look like, but I, I, I eat a lot. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, in your opinion, what is one of the most important trait um, or personality trait or strength someone would require to do or create, do great stuff or build a, build a company? Mm, I think they have to be honest with themselves. Um, you know, um, they will, they'll, they'll have to be honest to themselves and, uh, be able to reflect on their, on their own doing. Um, I think that's, that would be a, yeah, that'd be the right characteristic. Um, who has been your most important professional mentor or mentors? And there are so many, but I want to talk about my first, uh, one of my first boss. So she was not directly my boss. She was my boss's boss uh, at Catalyst, uh, Bozia And I think the way she inspired me and I was, I, I was like a fresh grad and she would go and send me on important deals, um, writing an MOU, signing an MOU with companies like Bombay Suites. And there's a big company who wants to do contract farming. They want to, you know, she would say, well, but you know, design, you know, drop the MOU, whatever you want to put, right? Blah, blah, blah. She'd give me so much freedom. And I think, I think, yeah, she, she inspired me. And I think that built my confidence a lot. And um, if you could be remembered for one thing, what would it be? Um, a person who could um, smile in any situation. Okay. And um, do you see yourself continuously building stuff one after another or do you think of yourself retiring at some point and then finding a completely different uh, purpose in life? Yeah, that's a tough question. Depends, um, you know, what's the assumption here? How much money have I made? Um, yeah, no. <laughs> so how much, so, so, okay, good question. How much money do you think is going to be a good threshold for you to retire or let's say stop doing everything what's your financial goal um i don't really have a financial goal so right now it's because of a daughter so it's more about like you know probably the personal um aspiration is to make sure that um, i can give her a comfortable life but not like a too comfortable life um so, so that's 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 the idea but I think I think after I farmer, whenever I make an exit, um, if I do make an exit, um, I think I want to take up another challenge. Um, and yeah, I don't see myself retiring. I think I'll I'll, I'll die out of boredom if I not doing anything. Okay. And last question: um, Where can the listeners find you online if they want to follow your trails? Uh, LinkedIn. I think LinkedIn, that's where I am. I'm trying to get used to Twitter, but I think I'm still more active on LinkedIn. Okay, and what's your handle on LinkedIn? Um, Fahadifaz. Just search for Fahadifaz and there. Hopefully okay. kindly. Great. Fahad, this was really, really wonderful talking to you. I had a blast. And uh, the reason why we didn't talk for such a long time, we ended up having talked for almost more than two hours now. Uh, thank you so much for... <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. I've just noticed the clock. But yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, no, 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 no. I I really enjoyed the conversation, and thank you so much for you know making the time for Beginners Moonshot. Thank you so much, and yeah, good luck uh, with Beginners Moonshot, and I I, I hope um, this is a good trend that you've started, like you know, picking out um, people's back, you know, the backstory behind behind all the glitter and the glory that people usually um, see. Um, like, I, I don't think I haven't talked about the misfit story to a lot of people. Um, but yeah, this is this, this is really, uh, I enjoy this conversation. So thank you for having me here. Beginner's Moonshot is hosted and produced by me, Salman Hussain. This episode was co-curated by Samiha Sharmin and mixed by Rafian Nobi Nahin. If you like this podcast, it will mean a lot if you drop a review, which will help reach more awesome listeners like yourself around the world. If you also have suggestions for future guests, please do share them in the comment section below or write me directly however you'd like. And finally, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast for your weekly episodes of Beginner's Moonshot. I'll see you next week.